Hi, everybody. This is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome to the Abbott Talks podcast. Over the past few years, the world has come to recognize Abbott as a company dedicated to helping people live happier and healthier lives. In this podcast series, we'll talk with the healthcare leaders, the executives, and the engineers who are working every day to develop new technologies to help people live their best lives. I know you'll enjoy this episode of the Abbott Talks podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Abbott Talks podcast. Abbott had some great news this summer. They obtained FDA approval for their Avair DR system. And uh, we had the uh, very rare opportunity and lucky opportunity to speak with Vish Sharan, who is the Divisional Vice President, Head of Product Development at Abbott. We'll talk about uh, overall product development process, but we'll talk a lot about CRM. He's got a lot of uh, a lot of experience in the CRM space. We'll talk about the significance of VAIR, about uh, about these pacemakers and how they're going to help folks remain healthy and uh, and where Abbott is going in the future. So uh, really timely conversation. Again, we spoke with Vish Sharan, Divisional Vice President of Product Development at Abbott. And uh, I know you'll learn a lot. I certainly did. And very happy to bring you this conversation. But before we begin this episode of the Abbott Talks podcast, these podcasts can't happen without our great sponsors. And I'd like to bring in our great sponsor of this episode, Resonant Link. I'm speaking with CEO and co-founder Grayson Zulaf. Grayson, tell us a bit about Resonant Link. What does Resonant Link do? Yeah, so Resonant Link is number one in wireless power for implantable medical devices. And our mission is really to make the standard of care for active implantables, a rechargeable standard. So right now, for people that have pacemakers or mini neurostimulators, they need a surgery to replace the device, to replace the battery when it runs out. And that could be as frequently as every year or every decade, but that requires an invasive surgery to replace them. Resonant Link, the company that I co-founded, was really launched to make the future of these devices rechargeable so that people don't need surgeries when their batteries run out. And recharging them is most importantly non-invasive, but also fast, it's seamless, it's easy to use, and it's something that fits nicely into their lives. I will hear more from Grayson Zuloff of Resident Link a little later in the podcast. You want to find out more about Resident Link, which was a sponsor of Device Talks Boston, go to its website, resident-link.com. Well, Vish Sharan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here chatting with you at Device Talks. Yeah, it's great to uh, great to catch up on your recent news of, of Avair. But before we get into that and the whole CRM space and your contribution there, as always, we'd like to learn about our guests' path into medical devices. So what drew you to first to engineering and then to medical devices? And, and did those two things sort of happen simultaneously or, or were they on different tracks? It's actually a great story. I could go on for a long time, but <laughs> as short as I could. So We got all up, the time in the world. Right. So I grew up in India and I grew up lucky to be a grown up in a family of engineers and doctors and you. It's important to blend engineering innovation 
attention to physician needs. And I was much more fascinated with the world of uh, technical engineering and thought it would be best to take my skills and see what can I do to the medical field as uh, I was closely attached to both. So from the very start, you wanted to go into biomedical engineering? I went into mechanical engineering and in my bachelor's and then in my master's, I did electromechanical systems and that fed right in into what I'm doing today in cardiac rhythm management as the devices that we make today are electromechanical systems and it fit perfect and it's a great story. Are you the only uh, member of your family that is able to combine both the healthcare side and, and the, the engineering side or are there other biomedical engineers in your family? Actually, I'm one of the only ones who have been, <laughs> a lot of them have been straight engineering or straight uh, as doctors. So it's it's great to now have conversations with both sides of right. uh, the family about what can be done to help society. That's great. You can you can straddle both worlds. Before we get into your, your work, well, now at Abbott. I noticed that you did receive your your MBA. I'm always trying to sort of explore people's career paths and understand the decisions they made, why they were either the right ones and they usually are, or why they weren't. What was it that uh, convinced you to get your your MBA? Going into my uh, education, I started over here. I did my master's at UCLA, which uh, is down here in Los Angeles, where I happened to also start working. At that time, St. Jude Medical was was later acquired by Abbott. And over my career, I spent in uh, various aspects of engineering, quality engineering, R&D, manufacturing, and realized there was immense value in uh, getting different perspectives. And I thought, what's best to be a better business leader? How can I serve more people and have a greater impact? I thought, let's, let's go do an MBA. And now with an MBA, you learn skills about sales and marketing and finance. And this helps us first uh, from a marketing side, understands what customers want and uh, then figure out what decision process a customer goes through, a physician, a hospital, or any group. And then coming back to how do you then turn that into the right investments that a corporation has to make to ensure that you're delivering, delivering product. And MBA was really helpful as it gave me a much broader perspective to ensure that we can deliver uh, to our customers. How has that impacted your abilities as a, as an engineer, having that broader view of the field? Do you think you're, you're better than you were, or are you simply a more capable medical device executive? I would say right now, as uh, the leader of R&D, where I have to make uh, many decisions about where to invest and what are the right investments, when are they going to pay the right returns? It's about blending in those needs about the customer can be done technically and then figuring out how does it fit for the right business model. Great. So now let's focus a bit on your career path that led you to CRM. You entered or started working on CRM projects relatively early. You mentioned you were at St. Jude's, according to your LinkedIn profile. It appears around maybe 17 years ago, you started working CRM. What drew you to the space? Was it a conscious decision? Yeah, it's actually about 20 years back. Okay. And Started, so been here two decades in this industry and specifically cardiac rhythm management. What drew me to it is uh, it's the heart. The mm. heart is um, a very important organ in the body. It's also uh, an electrical mechanical system. It's been studied for many years. 
But unfortunately, heart disease is a leading cause of death in the US and worldwide. So it's an area that needs to be continued to work on so that we can deliver better solutions for people. And uh, specifically coming back to what how that connects to cardiac rhythm management. Cardiac rhythm management is where we develop and provide medical devices to treat abnormal heart rhythms. And once you get into the space, you realize that the devices that we make are extremely complex. We make pacemakers, defibrillators, cardiac monitors, resynchronization devices. And uh, these do activities like if you're managing a slow heartbeat, you use a pacemaker to first sense whether your heart is beating abnormally and then to pace it appropriately. If your heart is beating erratically and you get into what we call a ventricular fibrillation or tachycardia, you use a implantable cardiac defibrillator, the ones uh, which uh, shock you. And at least externally, uh, you see these shocking pads that folks use and AEDs, but we are able to do that from inside the body in a device which is extremely small which is shocking at about 800 volts. And we also make uh, devices which are implantable cardiac monitors, almost the size of a paperclip. But uh, the new ones, as uh, Abbott released a new one into the market uh, just about a couple of months back, which I was closely involved with, uh, now last six years, and is monitoring electrical activity in the heart and able to then communicate to the phone, which then sends the data to the physician. And uh, this type of innovation in all these spaces require uh, complex engineering disciplines to come together. And that's what motivated me. Like these complex activities where you're dealing with mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, Mm -hmm. communication, software, embedded software, cloud, app engineers, it's extremely stimulating. No, I imagine so. And I never really thought about the intersection of all the, those different disciplines. And some of those came on a bit later in more recent years. How, how has the space changed when you started working on it 20 years ago? Were the devices, I always assumed they were more simpler than maybe I gave them credit for, but, but how has the device changed and how has the space changed over those 20 years? So let me I'll focus uh, specifically on pacemakers. Okay. Pacemakers have been in existence for uh, 60 years, six decades And they have a system where you have an implantable pulse generator, which is a can you can see over here, which has electronics, it's got a big battery, and it's got connectors to then connect to what we call lead wires. And these lead wires go inside the heart, go through the superior vena cava, and go inside the heart, and then get screwed in or attached to the heart, which then send electrical signals, both sensing and stimulating signals from the heart to a device which is placed under the skin in the chest of the patient. And that's how technology was for the past uh, 60 years. And the good thing is uh, over many years, they have dropped in size significantly. They used to be, to give you a perspective, they were about uh, 35 to 40 cc cubic centimeters in size, and they did very limited functions about uh, 40, 50 years back. And uh, the more recent ones in the traditional pacing space were about 10 cc. So they dropped in size by about three to four fold. What would the 35 cc be? The size of a, of, a, of a wallet? A little bigger than a wallet? A hockey puck. Okay. Hockey puck. That works. <laughs> well, you're, you're going from a size uh, of a 
hockey puck to a very small size, almost the size of a car key remote. Okay. All right. That, that, that gives you, hopefully gives you perspective on what the two were. And uh, over the years, we added more features. And more recently, as you did mention, we added more connectivity features of Bluetooth and getting to the apps and the cloud. And all those were the features that were added uh, more recently in the traditional pacing world. But like anything, engineers and doctors always thought, where can we take this? And that's where 15 years back, the industry and specifically us, we innovated to bring leadless pacers to the world. And we'll talk more about that today. Yeah, no, we certainly will in a moment. But I, just focusing on the connectivity as an engineer, I mean, I imagine there's great excitement about the increased functionality that these devices have when they're connected, when they're providing data, either to physicians or, or, or to patients who are monitoring something. I think they just make them work more effectively. But on the flip side, the stuff that I don't see and patients don't see, they must be just bringing in all those different voices and, and specialties must make the process much more difficult. I imagine it's a lot more complicated to get a device together when you're trying to serve so many different masters. We still look at it as serving one master, which is the person who needs <laughs> Fair <pacing>. point. <laughs> Fair point. That's the best master, yes. Yeah, that's the best master. And we <laughs> want to ensure that we, we make the absolutely safe and reliable products for the physicians to use because they have to make very tough decisions as they have to manage a care for uh, the people who have cardiac disorders. The challenges about bringing all these technologies together, that lays internal. And it's our role and responsibility to ensure that uh, we can provide the best. Well, let's talk specifically about Aver. We opened up with that. How long has this been in the works? When was it conceptualized? What's the process been like? And, and introduce, introduce us to Aver. What, what, what do we need to know about it? Absolutely. So Aver and Aver is our leadless pacemaker platform. And uh, it's a very exciting product. And uh, the more recent Aver, which we brought to the market is Aver DR. And uh, that's absolute first to the market technology, FDA breakthrough designated technology. And that was recently approved in June of this year, and we're looking to bring it to the market. And it's exciting that we first got approval of this technology in the US. That is not typical, uh, where uh, typically new technologies, especially in the medical world, get approved uh, in regions outside the US and they come to the US earlier. But this one was very special, where uh, it had a very, very fast clinical trial. And being designated by the FDA as a breakthrough medical device, we were able to bring it to the U.S. first and really excited about that. So pause, let's for, go back. Pause, pause for a moment, though, on that, on that moment, if you don't mind. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you get the FDA approval. For you, is that, all right, we've checked that box next, or is that sort of a, a tipping point where you're just, I don't know, you feel a rush of relief, you feel some kind of emotion, you put so much work into it, and you finally get that green light you've been hoping to get? What was that moment like, if you don't mind me asking? It's an extreme moment of emotions where uh, we all have been working on this medical technology for many years, almost a decade. And uh, when you bring it to the market and you had a successful clinical trial and getting it approved by the FDA, and uh, that's not an easy task. And now available to the U.S. patients is, uh, is very, very exciting. You're walking on air for a little while, I imagine. <laughs> 
I will take a quick break from this conversation to bring back our sponsor, Resonant Link. Once again, I am speaking with Grayson Zuloff. Grayson, tell us, how does Resonant Link help medical device companies? We really think about working with medical device companies as their partners in power is what we like to call it. And so when you look at an active implantable device, whether that's a pacemaker, a cardiac device, or a neurostimulator, these are really power and energy devices. You have a battery inside the body, you're delivering some sort of stimulation, and then you need to recharge that battery to make it easy to use and long lasting. And so Resonant Link works directly with medical device OEMs as their partners in this whole power and energy stack with a very specific expertise and technology suite on the wireless charging side. So today we work with 18 medical device OEMs, and that number is growing every day to deliver this fast, easy to use, and efficient wireless charging to their patients. And that's great. And let's drill down a bit. Can you talk specifically about your wireless charging capabilities and what makes your technology different from the wireless charging that some of our listeners may have tried in the past, or maybe they're even using it today in their medical devices? Absolutely. So when we launched Resonant Link in 2018, it was really launched around this completely new way of building the coils that sit at the heart of a wireless charger. So our coils, which were invented at Dartmouth College in 2013 and really perfected over the next five years, have about five to 10 times lower losses or lower heat generation than a conventional wireless charging coil that people are familiar with or might be in a medical device today. And this really allows us to push the limits of what's possible on recharging for active implantables. So we just announced a Philvast project with Abbott where since 1965, people have been looking to eliminate the driveline on ventricular assist devices, but kept running into a heat generation problem. And in just nine months of working with them, we were able to deliver on the specification. So over 10 watts of continuous power uh, and, and show a path to market there for the first time. Another example of of what this technology has enabled is today for a rechargeable spinal cord stimulator, it takes about two to three hours to recharge and patients need to sit very still because you can't jostle and and misalign the, the coils at any time. We just came out and announced at Device Talks Boston a 2.5 watt charging platform for devices like spinal cord stimulators that reduces this charge time from two to three hours down to 15 to 20 minutes and lets patients move around while charging. So really at the end of the day, the technology is the foundation, but we're trying to deliver something that makes patients' lives better. That's great. We'll hear a little more from Resident Link CEO Grayson Zuloff a little later in the podcast. Once again, if you want to find out more information, go to resident-link.com. Well, let's let's please continue talking about the Avera platform and and, and the, your your most recent version of Avera. Absolutely. So, I, actually, let me go back a little bit since okay. you asked about the story about Avair. So the Avair first generation product was NanoStim. And uh, that came through an acquisition to St. Jude Medical. It was a partnership that uh, St. Jude Medical and NanoStim, the company was also called NanoStim, 
had uh, prior to 2012, and we acquired the company in 2012. It was a first leadless pacemaker introduced to the world in 2013. We brought it to market, and then we also realized that there were many improvements that were needed, uh, many improvements to make it easier for physicians to use. We dealt with a few challenges that we overcame in battery life. and uh, But the most exciting was when we thought about it, we said, the first product was what we call a single chamber pacemaker, which went only into one chamber of the heart and was uh, sensing and stimulating or pacing in only one chamber of the heart. We thought the real world of pacing requires sensing and pacing in both chambers of the heart, which is the atrium and the ventricle. So that is when we moved into the development of a VAIR platform, which is let's get this dual chamber technology where uh, you have two independent leadless pacemakers placed one in the right atrium of the heart and another placed in the right ventricle of the heart, which operate almost as one and where these two devices are communicating together to provide the exact therapy that is needed uh, for the person who's got abnormal heart disease. Interesting. Okay. So that was the initial concept. How, how has it moved on from there? Yeah, since then, since Nanostem, we brought uh, Avair VR to the market. Avair ventricular uh, rate responsive device was introduced last year to the U.S. and around the world. And uh, now we are bringing DR to the market. It is going to change the world of pacing because 80% of pacemaker use 80, 90, you could somewhere between 80 to 90% is what we call dual chamber pacing, where you are uh, stimulating and pacing in both chambers of the heart. And bringing first to the market technology has many challenges because it's extremely new. Nobody's ever done this before. So it is new for us as a company to ensure that we can now train physicians on uh, the appropriate implant technique ensuring that uh, we are programming the two pacemakers in the atrium and the ventricle appropriately and getting this really cool benefit of I2I communication, which then provides AV synchrony where the atrium and the ventricle of the heart are operating in unison. So tell me a bit about I2I technology. How does that work? I2I technology is a proprietary technology that uh, Abbott is bringing with the Avare DR pacing system. And uh, how the technology works is that it is the method that the two independent pacemakers, one in the atrium and one in the ventricle, communicate with each other to ensure that you're sending signals either about the heart, about uh, what it is sensing and need to stimulate, or about the device itself between both them. How that is done is uh, through a uh, proprietary communication technology where it involves sub-threshold electrical stimulation. And what we mean by sub-threshold electrical stimulation is you're sending short bursts of electrical signals from one pacemaker to the other, but this is below the threshold at which the heart activates or the heart tries to react to it. So it is done in a very safe manner and it is just sent as ones and zeros, like any other form of binary communication. And they are also done in modalities where they're done three at a time to ensure that uh, you have an appropriate signature of the communication technology between the A and V. 
and uh, the electronics in the device, uh, these small devices, which are smaller than a AAA battery, can now read these and understand what the communication is going on between the atrium and the ventricle. And that helps us uh, ensure that we provide to patients what we call AV synchrony, which is atrioventricular synchrony. So the heart has to be beating at an appropriate pace but an appropriate timing between the atrium and the ventricle to ensure good blood flow. And how are you able to achieve that miniaturization that requires you talking about how much smaller the, the devices, the implants are getting, yet seems to be so much more in there. What is driving that miniaturization? It's a great question. And that's a long story. It takes a significant amount <laughs> of uh, technology to get there. Over the years where I've been there for 20 years, Electronics have evolved. Electronics have evolved to become a lot more smaller. Packaging of electronics, manufacturing technology has improved. Also, we are designing custom circuitry or custom ICs in the devices. Battery technology has evolved and the ability to make batteries, these devices in single chamber mode, almost last 20 years. Wow. In uh, dual chamber mode. Uh, depending on the atrium or the ventricle, they last somewhere between about six to 10 years. And uh, also another technology which we don't talk about much is uh, delivering this product. And uh, we use catheters uh, used in many medical devices, but these are much more sophisticated catheters to deliver. And uh, the great thing about what Avair brings to the market is uh, once a battery runs out, we're able to remove these devices through what we call a retrieval catheter that uh, we have in the market as well. So we don't have to be worried about leaving pacemakers with dead batteries in the heart. We're able to bring them back. It's like getting rid of space junk. <laughs> with miniaturization, are we at a point where you physically can't get any smaller than we are? Or is, there, is this going to be a continued trend? Ten years from now, are you going to be talking about something the size of a, I don't know, of a pea? Uh, where are we headed with miniaturization? It's absolutely going to get smaller. Yeah. Electronics are going to get smaller, but we also need batteries and battery chemistry to get smaller. And uh, I don't think battery chemistry is a lot more challenging than electronics right now. <laughs> that is something that we will all overcome. A lot of folks, as uh, you know, in, in, in the world around us working to make electric cars and make better batteries. And that's a challenge that even they face. I imagine this is a technology that wouldn't work with some sort of wireless connection to an external battery. You'd have to have the battery there. Like you don't, you don't want to disrupt that. <laughs> you don't want someone to. Lose if if that. you have an external battery, you're back to the old way of pacing. Right. Or, uh, you have uh, wires in the heart, which yep. then come out to implantable pulse generator, which is under the skin and the chest. That's the wrong direction. Well, well, final question. You mentioned you've been doing this for 20 years. I'm sure you'll continue doing this for, for many more. Where do you see the field headed? I would say it's extremely exciting. A significant amount of investment uh, for our company and the world of cardiac rhythm management is moving into leadless pacing and bringing dual chamber leadless pacing is going to take a monumental task for uh, companies like Abbott to ensure that uh, we are training physicians as this is first-to-market technology. We also need to bring this to many folks around the world. What the really good thing is we had a global clinical trial, what was used for the FDA approval. So we did have sites enrolled in Canada, in Europe, in Asia, 
And uh, we will get product approvals around the world and that'll continue our journey of training. And uh, something else which is uh, also changing in the world of pacing, it's getting exciting again, is what we call conduction system pacing, where you are stimulating specific locations in the heart to have physiologic stimulation. And that is going to be the next adventure where now we have to evolve these devices to make sure that they work with conduction pacing system needs. And that's going to keep going and we'll continue to add more features, more technology, make them smaller. It's it's a great time. Terrific. Well, I appreciate the education on pacemaking and CRM and and Avair. Good luck with the commercial rollout. And thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much, Tom. It was great chatting with you today. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much to Vishiran for joining us on the Abbott Talks podcast. Thanks again to Resident Link for being a great supporter of Device Talks in our podcast, including this episode of the Abbott Talks podcast. And thanks, of course, to you for listening. A few things you could do to help us out. Please like, follow, and or subscribe to the Device Talks podcast network on any major podcast player. That way you won't miss a future episode of Abbott Talks or our other great podcasts. You can also find all of those podcasts at devicetalks.com. Please share this episode on social media. And when you do, I would love it if you tagged me, let me be part of that conversation. Or if you just want to connect on LinkedIn, I am there, Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I, Editorial Director of Device Talks. Finally, we'll have Abbott well represented at our Device Talks West meeting, which is happening on October 18th and 19th at the Santa Clara Convention Center. Would love to have you there to be part of uh, the discussions that we'll be having on the floor, in the room, on the expo floor. So uh, please do go to devicetalks.com to register for that. Uh, Again, it's happening October 18th and 19th at the Santa Clara Convention Center. And if there are Abbott employees who are listening who would like to attend, please shoot me a direct message on LinkedIn and I'll tell you how to do that. So it would be great to see many, many folks, Abbott or otherwise, at the Device Talks West Conference. Go to devicetalks.com for more information. Once again, folks, that is a wrap. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Abbott Talks Podcast. 